Hi, I'm Lori Feathers, a bookstore owner and writer in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Sam Jordison, a publisher from Norwich in the UK. And this is Across the Pond. A podcast for readers of fiction eager to discover the most discussed and anticipated books on both sides of the Atlantic. All right, let's dive in. Hi, Sam. How's it going? Hey, Laurie. I'm good, thank you. What's happening over there? Well, what is happening? Ah, I've got news. And this is really, I think, relevant across the pond news. So, you know, at my bookstore, we've been doing this collective read idea for uh-huh. a few years where we read a big book and we read little pieces of it every day. And I comment about each day's reading. Well, we just announced that for 2024, our collective Collective Read is going to be The Wolf Hall Trilogy by Hilary Mantel. We're going to do all three books. So I'm pretty excited about that and I guess a little intimidated. (laughs) Intimidated? Yes, intimidated insofar as, you know, I probably don't know that history that the books cover quite as well as I should. Although, you know, I think I'm going to be so immersed in it that... And I trust Hilary Mantel to give me lots of good context. I read Wolf Hall myself when it came out years ago, but I didn't read either volume two or volume three. So some of this is going to be brand new for me. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Yeah, trusting Hilary Mantel, that's the way to go. I mean, she <laughs> is wonderful. So you'll be okay. You're in very, very safe hands, I would suggest. Big word count, but it's going to be fun for you. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, we're going to, it's going to take us about five or six months to do it. We're going to do the first two books before the summer, and then we're going to break for the summer. And then the third book, The Mirror and the Light, is the longest of the three. And we're going to start that up after our Labor Day holiday here in the States, which is kind of the official end of summer for us. So it's going to be a year-long project. Good. What a great way to fill the year. Oh, I'm envious. That sounds wonderful. Have you by chance watched any of the series that are based on the books? I've never seen them. I mean, I've heard they're good. Okay. Yeah. I might just dip into those just to see what they're like. I'm kind of curious. But yeah, so the Collective Read starts on February 19th. So there's still plenty of time to get on my bookstore's website, interabangbooks.com. That's interabang with an A, B-A-N-G. And sign up. It's free. I think we're going to have a good time and a good discussion. Great. I'm sure you will. And Sam, what else is happening newsworthy-wise in your world? Well, there's been a lot of discussion here in the UK recently about the ongoing issue. And I say issue because people really don't like it, of celebrities writing books and novels. We have lots of children's books over here that are put out by pretty well-known comedians and people who are on talk shows and have a name and people who are not on those, who don't have those outlets and are professional writers can get a bit antsy about it for, I guess, understandable reasons that someone can come along and sell a book on their name rather than the quality of the book is the argument. Although actually, you know, some of these books are actually pretty good. There's a comedian who's very famous here in the UK called David Baddiel, who has written some books, children's books, and, you know, he's a good writer. So I find it hard to begrudge these people. Richard Ayoade, who's just wonderful, and he's written children's books that have done really well, but they're great. So, you know, there are strong pro and con arguments, I guess, but... (laughs) 
there is a new entrant into this field. And it's part of the reason the, the discussion has bubbled up again. And that person is Keanu Reeves. But it's not quite the usual thing because it's not just coming out under his name. He is co-writing a book with China Mieville. And I've got to say, I like the sound of it. China Mieville, for listeners who don't know, is essentially an SF author. But he writes these very sophisticated, very interesting, very provocative, often very left-wing SF books like The City in the City and King Rat that play with form and genre and the city in the city in particular is this really interesting book where people are kind of living in i realize i've got to pause because i'm going to get into a lot of trouble trying to describe what happens in the city in the city because it's mind-bending stuff there's one city or other two cities and (laughs) (laughs) essentially hence the title people have different perceptions of reality within the city and there's these two parallel worlds interacting in almost the same space but then they collide in different interesting ways it gets really complicated it's brilliant so what i'm saying is he's a serious writer and has a good solid track record and actually i don't think he's produced anything for quite a while so i've been wondering what he's been up to and keanu reeves meanwhile i mean i kind of love him like most people do so i really want his book to be good I kind of don't like him, but oh, really, but I, <laughs> what? So, Hang on a minute! How can you not like Keanu Reeves? <laughs> he, I don't know. He's just—I feel like he plays these really stupid characters, and I have a hard time <laughs> divorcing like him and like the characters. He's probably a lovely person, but this book has been getting a lot of press here in the states too. What's the book called, Sam? Oh, that. Hang on a minute. I, I'm so distracted by the the anti. Keanu Reeves <laughs> talk that it's right the title from right it's called The Book of Elsewhere but let me link to Keanu's defence quickly because I think it's a mistake to underestimate him if you hear him in interviews he's very charming, very funny, and pretty smart, I would say. And he does play dumb characters. I mean, most famously, he's in Bill and Ted, but he's wonderful at that. Just great. So, and also, I didn't realise this, but this hasn't come out of nowhere. So he has worked in comics before. And so he has written with another author, a set of comics. In fact, let me name them, with Matt Kint and the artist Rod Ron Garney. And the comics are called the B-R-Z-R-K-R series, or Berserker, of course. So it's something he's been working on for a long time and obviously takes pretty seriously. And I know it sounds like I'm Keanu simping here. And kind of <laughs> but I do think he's an interesting guy. And, you know, China Mieville, I'm pretty sure wouldn't get into something unless he thought it was good. Two points, and I'm going to be agreeable here, Sam. I'm not going to continue on an anti-Keanu screed. But yes, he he is an author in his own right, Keanu, with this berserker comic novel. And I understand that this new novel, which he's co-writing, is based on that same berserker world. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be a comic, but it's based on the same. And yes, Novo is a serious writer. If I'm not mistaken, the last book that he wrote, I think was maybe around 2018, 2019. And it was nonfiction, I think, about the Russian Revolution. Right. So yeah, he's the real deal. I haven't read his science fiction. So yes, this book, I'm taking it seriously. We are buying it for the store, believe me, because it would be suicidal not to buy the book and bring it in for customers. It's getting a lot of press already. It's going to continue to get a lot of press through the spring. But this does, I think, indicate a continuance of this trend. You were talking about stars writing books, children's books, other books over there. Here, there seems to be these partnerships that are happening with established writers. 
authors and stars or well-known people. And I think probably the most pronounced case that I can think of is there's a mystery novel here, very famous guy who's written, I think, literally like 300 books, if you include his children's books, James Patterson. Mm -hmm. He wrote a mystery novel with Bill Clinton. (laughs) And then there's a female mystery writer, also very well-known, Louise Penny. And she wrote a mystery with Hillary Clinton. So (laughs) I don't know. I'm a little jaded about the, you know, the pair-ups here. I guess we'll see. I'm going to keep an open mind. Okay, good. Am I going to defend the Clintons as strongly as I want to defend Keanu Reeves? I don't know. Maybe I'll park that one. But I mean, they're smart people. so They are smart people. Sometimes I wonder why these authors agree to co-write a book with stars, but that's okay. Yeah. I mean, it's not straightforward as we've discussed. And in a way, it feels like people elbowing their way into the literary world. But then I guess the flip side of that is it shows that books still have this cachet and having your name on a book is an enviable and admirable thing. So hopefully it reflects well on all the other authors out there as well. Yeah, I much prefer this than all of the celebrity memoirs that <laughs> that just come in I feel like dump loads into this store. You know, there's just a never ending series of people who famous or not so famous that think that we should be really interested in a lot of the details of their lives. And they're often very poorly written. So these celebrity memoirs. (laughs) I mean, yes. (laughs) Yeah. And that opens up the whole other kind of worms of ghost writers and who's writing these books and what's really happening behind the scenes. I guess the nice thing about the co-production is it's all there up front and on the cover and we know it's not just the famous person behind it. I kind of feel like I'm playing the defender of things today. The thing that came into my head when you started talking about that, the celebrity memoirs, was how much I loved reading the Elton John memoir recently. So they do have their place. Yeah, and the Barbara Streisand memoir um, here (laughs) has been like over the top. I mean, the sales (laughs) are incredible and it's over 900 pages. I mean, it's a chunk. I'm going to change subjects here and it's not a graceful segue at all. And it's pretty much the opposite of what we have been talking about. But I wanted to mention, Sam, a course. It's like my first real course, I think, that I've ever taught. It starts this month. I'm teaching it at the Dallas Institute for Humanities and Culture. And it is a course entitled Mindful Reading. And it's pretty much the opposite of the star stuff that we've just talked about. I'm going to ask everyone kindly to relinquish their phones and we are going to read either a short story or novella quietly to ourselves, the same one. I've got a syllabus and then we're going to talk about it after two hours of quiet reading without any electronic interruptions. And it's an experiment. I'm going to see how it goes, but I'm excited. We're reading some really good texts. Our first class is we're reading J.L. A Month in the Country. Whoa, that's a wonderful book. That is wonderful, right? And just the right size, I think, to kind of sit somewhere and read it for a couple of hours. We're also going to read Gabriel Garcia Marquez's Chronicle of a Death Foretold. Of course, because I'm teaching it, we're going to be reading a Henry James short story, (laughs) The Aspen Papers. So if you're interested, get on the website for the Dallas Institute of Humanities and Culture, and I'll let you know how it goes. I'm as interested as anyone else to see whether this is going to be a success and if people can really deal with, I guess, the maybe there will be anxiety about 
not being able to look at your phone for two hours. Yes, that's going to be interesting. The Henry James particularly is going to be a facer, but I mean, great. I mean, that's probably the way to read Henry James. Lock out the distraction and just get in there and take it on. Yeah, one of the inspirations for this course was all the people that come into the bookstore and tell me, oh, you know, this book looks great, but I have so many unread books at home. I can't buy any more and I just can't read a book anymore. I can't focus. I don't have, you know, the bandwidth to just sit quietly and concentrate anymore. There's too many distractions in my life. So we'll see if this helps. So far, the response has been very positive. We haven't had a class yet, but people seem to like the idea, or at least some people like the idea. Oh, yeah, it sounds really good. And a month in the country, reading that in that intense, concentrated ways, it's going to be a transcendent experience for some people. People who haven't read it before, they're going to be knocked out. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah. Well, thanks, Sam. I've got to tell you one of the many great stories. J.L. Carr, the author of that book, was this tremendous British eccentric and really interesting man who did all kinds of fantastic things, set up his own publishing company. Have a look at his background if you don't know much about him. He himself was like a character from a novel. But one thing he liked to do was to create objects, kind of, you know, mash together a bit of an alarm clock, a bit of concrete, bit of something else, these strange, oddly shaped, very striking things that he would then take out into his garden or the countryside and bury in the hope that future generations would dig them up and not have a clue what they were and what purpose they served. And the rationale, as he explained it, was, well, I want to give them something to think about. That is so eccentric and cool. So where these things are buried, does someone from his estate own that land? And is there any kind of idea about how long he wanted them (laughs) buried before they started being dug up? The answer to those questions is, I don't know. I don't think people know where they are. So hopefully one day some of them will be discovered. Whether people will be able to trace them back to jail car is an entirely different question. That's such a fascinating story. And as you're telling it, I guess I'm thinking I'm not that surprised because the main character in A Month in the Country is not just a gadget guy, but he's really interested like in how the old stove in this ancient church works. And he's very interested in how things operate. So it's really cool. Yeah, it's good. Coincidentally, on the Gallybegger critical reading course that we do, our online course, we're going to be looking at a month in the country, I think sometime in April or May. So we should exchange notes. We should. I did not know that you had picked that book for your course. I was inspired by another podcast that I listened to and one of the co-host just raves about a month in the country. So I was like, okay, it's time to take a look at that. But yes, we will. We will exchange notes. You know, I I have to say that while there's no preparation in advance needed to sit for two hours and read these books, I did feel like I needed to read a month in the country in advance so that I already had some ideas about what to talk about after the reading session. But yeah, it's a fantastic book. We should definitely talk about it on one of the upcoming shows. Great. Good. I look forward to that. Me too. All right. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Laurie. And now across the pond, listeners, we are joined by Booker Prize winning author Paul Lynch, who is here to talk to us about his novel Prophet Song. 
Welcome, Paul. Hi, Laurie. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. To start, why don't you tell us a little bit about the book and the plot and kind of the setup? Sure. The book opens on a dark, wet evening in Dublin. Um, and Eilish Stack is the center of the novel. And there's a knock on the door. And she goes to open it. And she finds two officers from Ireland's newly formed GNSB, the Garda National Services Bureau, who are the secret police. And they want to speak to her husband and her husband, Larry, who is a trade unionist. And so we are opening in a time when life seems to be normal. A reader who lives in Dublin right now would recognize the city as they know it. So life seems to be as we'd know it, but yet it's also just subtly different. And so Eilish is a mother of four children. She works for a pharmaceutical company. She has three teenagers and an infant. And the country has just elected a populist government. And things are beginning to slide. Democratic norms are beginning to slide. The media is starting to be curbed. And prior to the book's opening, there has been an Emergency Powers Act put into place by the government, which is giving them emergency powers. And this is the sort of the world that we're entering into. The book doesn't state whether it's a parallel universe or a future world. Some people seem to think that it's a dystopic world. I would probably disagree with them, but you got to have your publishing labels. <laughs> I'm not going to get by without that. But the book is really begins with that sense of slide of Larry's taken in for questioning and Larry doesn't return. And the world, the known world is beginning to disappear. And Eilish and people in the book all say to themselves, but this can't be allowed to happen. But it does. And I suppose the book is really aligned very, very tightly to Eilish, to her experience of the democratic collapse, to her experience of trying to hold her family together while this enormity of forces take shape around her. And I mean, that's Prophet Song in a very nutshelly kind of way. So I want to ask about your hesitation over calling it a dystopia or your disagreement with the idea that it is a dystopian novel, because I had that kind of same thought that other people have had, that it's a dystopia. But then I, when I was reading it and as I thought about it more, I mean, the horrifying thought I had is that actually it's a kind of realist book. And that everything in it, it might not be happening in Ireland right now, but it's happening somewhere. Does that feel right? You know, when I started writing this novel, it occurred to me that the label dystopian might be used just for the very reason that what I was writing about seemed to be set in a reality that was an inconceivable world for Ireland, certainly something that seemed to be futuristic. And the title of the book was pointing in that direction. One of my sort of goals when I was writing this book was to undo that idea, to undo the form, so to speak, because often it seems to me that the dystopian fiction often has the feel of paper mache to it. It doesn't feel realistic enough for my sort of literary tastes. And sometimes too, there's the sense that it's coming with a very pointed political message, that it's constructing a futuristic world to really address a political point in our own time. And I wanted to work against those tropes. And the first thing that I did was I really wanted to deepen the sense of the real in this book, to deepen it to the point that we get the feeling of the heartbeat of Eilish as we move through the novel. And by deepening the book, by deepening the realism, you start to explode the form. And eventually what happens is the reader realizes, I hope, that what's happening in this book cannot be speculative fiction if what's happening in the book is already happening around the world right now. And so for that reason, it cannot be dystopian fiction. It's a counterfactual narrative. 
perhaps. But there, there's also something that's really fundamentally being missed here, which is that if you call this book dystopian, then you're saying that its conversation is aligned again towards the future. Whereas this book is continually in conversation with the past and the present. This book is continually asking questions within a sort of almost mythic space about what is it that's reoccurring throughout time? What are the patterns that are just recurring over and over and over again? And that's a conversation that is not a dystopian conversation. So that's probably why I bristle a little bit, but they're able to get used. I'd like to ask you about that past for a second. One of the things that's so very striking in the book is the lack of empathy and outright cruelty that Elish faces in her community by her neighbors, by people she doesn't even know after her husband is arrested. Just kind of a lack of human feeling, not just by the officials of the police state, but also just by ordinary people. It reminded me a little bit about some of the memoirs and other things that I'd read about times in the Soviet Union during Stalin's arrest of various people for no reason. And I wondered whether you there were any historical examples or things that kind of inspired you in writing the book regarding a police state and just the brutality and how people turn against each other? Yeah, you know, I would definitely have read some diaries of people who have lived through totalitarian experiences. And there's a line in the book, now is not a time to speak, now is a time to keep silent. And that's very important. That's the point at which, you know, everybody becomes complicit in the regime because to speak out risks drawing attention to yourself, risks imprisonment. And so you see the mask the face turns into a mask and Eilish finds herself completely isolated. And there is a tipping point in the novel that I suppose it's not really seen, but it's the point which people think, well, this isn't going to be allowed to happen. And then suddenly it is happening. And that tipping point happens very quickly. And which from that point on, the book, The Damn Thing has its own momentum is, is a sentence in the book. And Eilish is really just trying to work her way through a labyrinth of sorts, work against something which is actually immeasurable, which is beyond her comprehension. She's trying to map it. She's trying to articulate the level of the threat. All I need to do is this thing which will get me around this corner, but the damn thing is constantly moving beyond her. I want to ask about that labyrinth and how we feel it as readers and the various things you've done. For instance, in the presentation of the prose, which very strikingly, there's these big, long sentences, long chunks of prose without breaks that, well, you'll be able to explain it better than me, but give you a kind of a feeling of things being confined and close within. And there aren't speech marks, for instance. Can you tell us a bit about how you came upon that style and what you were aiming for? Every book asks for a form that articulates the meaning of the novel. And when you sit down to write, you're searching for the song of the book. You're searching for the rhythm. But you're also very quietly coming to grips with the mesh, the way the sentences will sit together, how those sentences will unfold, and how those sentences will convey that meaning. And the book began to say to me, there should be no paragraphs. The book began to say there should be long sentences. And I thought, okay, I'll go with this. And I realized that this is a book of inevitability. It's a book in which ultimately it's a series of equations. The very last line book being the QED that I had to prove true. And so I realized that I was writing a series of equations, this because of this, because of this, because of this. And so there's a deep, implacable logic that starts at the book and ends on that very last line. And to capture that sense of inevitability, of being caught up in a sort of tidal pull, one thing that I do is the sense of the long sentence, that feeling of just being carried onwards 
through time, caught up in the feeling of events, trying to make sense of what's happening and the confusion. At the same time, there's also nowhere to turn. There's no room for the essayistic in this book. There's no room for just branching out and everything is associated back to the event and to the meaning. So the book moves without paragraph breaks because Eilish is nowhere to turn. So the breathing room is constrained. The sense of claustrophobia is built into the paragraphs. And it just made perfect sense to do that. It's really interesting to hear you say it, it made perfect sense and you sound really confident and deliberate talking about it now but i remember in the speech you gave after you won the booker prize which was very moving but one thing you said was that you felt this book was dooming your career so it wasn't because it worries about the style of the book or the the difficulty of the book no i mean i have to say one thing i'm a bit surprised by is what i thought was more mainstream that uh, but turns out isn't it is actually fiction that pushes the form i mean you pick up any fitzgerald novel and you've got a writer who's absolutely playing to the edges of the court rather than hitting it down the center of the court and that's how i want my fiction and yet when i suppose you get to the level of booker awareness i was sort of surprised that there was this sort of oh my gosh there's no paragraphs here there's no (laughs) he's writing in long sentences as though i'm the only writer doing this fiction is full of writers pushing the form right now there seems to be a critical lack of awareness among critics in the UK right now, that takes me aback. You know, I say this as somebody who was a working critic for a long time. I was in the film world, but damn hell, I knew everything that was going on at every level. So I'm sort of surprised and taken aback by that. And when I said that I thought I would do my career, well, when you take this book as a whole, it's dark as, it's dark as a dungeon, you know? I mean, my gosh, it's an ordeal. Deal, but it's a truthful ordeal. I don't believe there's a single sentence in this book that's not truthful. And that's really important to me. Everything is always tested. Everything is there for the right reason, the principle of sufficient reason. You get everything there for the reason that it needs to be there and nothing extraneous. And so the book is truthful. And people, when they read it, that sense of truth, I think, overwhelms them and is the reason why the book succeeds, I hope, for the reader. But I thought when I handed this book over, okay, I've not been commercially successful as a writer prior to this. I've largely had fantastic reviews through most of my career. I've won some prizes, but I don't get a lot of sales. This is just going to damn me further and it's going to be so much harder to be published after this. And I gave it to my agent, Simon Truon, and he was silent. And little did I know was that he was reading the book again because he was thrown by what I'd done. I mean, I'm a dark writer and I write with what you might call the tragic worldview. I think I am a tragedian. You know, I'm trying to give new forms to tragedy, which again is something that is not understood. Modern fiction writers are not understood to be operating within this form. But that's what I've been doing across a number of my novels. And Simon came back to me and he said, I've read it twice now. And he said, this book is going to be an absolute explosion. And I thought, okay, I hope you're right. But he was nervous too. I wanted to ask about one of the elements of darkness in the book that absolutely overwhelmed me. And that is soon after Elish's husband is arrested, her elderly father, who seems to be confused at times and maybe starting to suffer from dementia, tells her, you should flee the country with the kids and you should do it now. Yeah. She doesn't take that advice. And I think that anyone that's been living in our political world in the West anyway, for the last 10 years, probably either has felt this or knows someone who has 
thought these thoughts about, do I leave my country? And if I do, when will it be too late to get out when the political situation is too awful? And I just felt that there was so much suspense and tension in that kind of palpable feeling that you kind of, it's almost like a horror movie, like, no, don't open the door. (laughs) It's like, Elish, get out, leave, you know, go, go, just get out any way that you can. And so I wondered how you kind of thought about that tension and suspense and the building of it over the course of the novel. This, Laurie, is one of the central questions in the novel. And it seemed to me that as a citizen, I've always said to myself, oh, well, I would know when it's time to get out. But I think we all say it to ourselves, you know, when we look at Germany in, in the early 30s, you go, ah, but I would have known, I would have left, I would have had the prescience to leave. But the novelist in me says, really, would you? And that's one of the things I seek to explore. Because when we live our lives, we are living embedded within a structure we're embedded within a series of relationships that define who we are. They're all identities. Eilish is a daughter. She's a microbiologist. She's a mother. She's a wife. She's a citizen of the country that she lives in. She understands herself through these multiple identities. And she also has responsibilities through these identities. She has responsibilities to her children. She has responsibilities to her husband who has been arrested. She has responsibilities to her father who is slowing into dementia. And at one point he says to her, you know, go to Canada. What's happening now is happening. You need to get out. And she's reminded later by her sister in Canada Sister Anya, who says to her, history is a silent record of those who did not know when to leave. And she says, that's all very well for you, Anya, you know, because I'm here and dad's got dementia and, you know, he needs care. And what if he falls and breaks a hip? What then? And so Eilish sort of unconsciously realizes that she can't leave. It's impossible to leave. And I suppose the book is revealing slowly that to leave is possibly the hardest thing in the world to do. To leave means tearing off your feet. It means... To be forced out means that all of these particular identities that I spoke about and others, they all have to be unplugged one after the other, after the other, after the other, until you've got nothing left, until you literally have nothing in the world left. And that's the point at which you will make the decision, the impossible decision to leave the known world behind. And I think that's one of the things that I learned about Eilish writing this book was the sheer complexity of that decision, which for most of us, when we look at events outside in the world, we meet with a serious deficit of imagination. We think, oh, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to get on a boat? Why would you put your children through such an event like that? And, you know, it seemed to me that a lot of fiction was taking on this question from the point of the boats onwards. And I thought that's not good enough. The question needs to be changed. The questions need to be changed. The questions need to start examining what does it mean for somebody to make that decision to get on the boats. What is it that puts somebody in that position in the first place? And that's what the book is in many ways. It's about examining at the greatest level of complexity how your world comes apart. Is this what you mean when you describe the book as a work of radical empathy? I think so. You know, I mean, on one hand, I sort of bristle against that a little bit, even though I said it. I think when you're, I don't think this, I know it. When you're a serious fiction writer, the idea of going out with messaging is really problematic. Fiction should be fundamentally about the framing of questions and not delivering answers. I think when you set out to answer your own questions with the answers in advance, then you're writing political fiction, for example, and you're just hobbling yourself because you're not even 
embracing the true level of complexity because you already know the answers. And, you know, I've spoken about this. That's going to work with grievance. And I'm interested in grief, which is that which cannot be solved, that which lies beyond us, that which is beyond our can, is beyond our understanding, and that which is lost and cannot be recovered. These are things that I'm more interested in. These are metaphysical things. But along the way, fiction does its thing. Fiction can create sympathy at one level, but if you're a more sophisticated writer, I think you can produce genuine empathy rather than sympathy. And there is a fundamental difference. And I think that this book, because it operates in a very close third person, it operates in the present tense, it operates with a particular way of writing that really brings the reader into that heartbeat, that sort of hidden life of unrecorded acts. Empathy does become possible. And maybe I should own this. I don't know. As I said, I kind of bristle because it sounds like I'm just really setting out to do that. And I'm not really setting out to do that. But I realized that that was one of the results that I think I achieve is a kind of radical empathy because, you know, I meet readers now all the time and they say to me, I understand now and I didn't understand before. And that is, that's an achievement of empathy. I wanted to ask about the writing in the book that maybe is not as acclaimed or talked about, but it's the nature writing in the book and then the writing of the natural world and the descriptions. And so a lot of the descriptions kind of reflect the darkness in Elish's life, you know, rain, cold, long nights, But I'm wondering, and maybe I'm off base here, but I also picked up somewhat some undercurrents of hopefulness in the writing of the natural world, almost as though it was contradicting, in some respects, the darkness of the book, because in a way, the natural world is totally oblivious to these problems of men and governments and power and control over people's lives and fates. It's just kind of out there. And of course, with climate change, I'm not sure we can say it's always going to be out there, but it's just kind of this perpetual force that no matter, I guess, how bad we humans mess up the world, there's still life perpetuating itself and it's still a natural force out there. In all my fiction, across five books now, the natural world is the proscenium arch that lies overhead the human drama. And from my first novel onwards, Red Sky and Morning, I have articulated my own way of approaching this. I suppose you could call it my own personal mythology, which is that I'm deeply interested in trying to articulate what I feel to be a very modern problem. And it's this, that the world around us is completely indifferent to our human problems. There is this cosmic space between the silent universe, the sense of deep time that we inhabit, that we live in, that we're always framed by the natural world that meets its seasons and regardless of human affairs. And at the same time, caught up within this world is the white hot moment of our own lives, of our own urgency, of our own affairs. And, you know, you can distill that down to a sort of simple metaphysics of here I am in my life and I'm trying to make meaning for myself in this silent, godless world, in this fallen world that we inhabit. I'm trying to make sense and give myself meaning. But the world around me doesn't give a damn. The world around me is indifferent. And how do we bridge that? And all my books are asking that question quietly in the background. That's one of the big themes that runs throughout my work. And... 
there may never be an answer to that, but it's a question. It's really interesting to hear you talking about the arc of your career when, of course, we've got you on here having reached in terms of publicity and everything else, what must be a real high point. But it's also interesting to think about this in terms of what you were talking about before about, say, Fitzcarraldo editions and people who are pushing these boundaries. And I wonder if you feel like you are treading your own furrow or you're part of a movement. Are there other writers that you feel are doing similar things? I mean, I know lots of people talk for very good reason at the moment about all the the astonishing writing that's coming out of Ireland and things that are happening there. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that I fit in anywhere particularly. I mean, when I travel, I'm told I'm an Irish writer. I'm like, okay. But when I look at Irish fiction, I don't see that many similarities between what I'm doing and other Irish writers at all. I think that French critics very early on put me into a different tradition. They put me into the tradition of Faulkner and McCarthy. That's much closer to what it is that I'm doing. I wrote about this for the Booker website, that there's a particular type of fiction that Ian Foster wrote about in his book on fiction, what he called the prophetic novelists. And then Flannery O'Connor picked up on Ian Forster, read crediting him, but she picked up on his ideas and she developed them in her essay on the grotesque. And both of them were identifying writers who are what Flannery O'Connor called realists of distances, who are trying to articulate the infinite within the personal space. And I see writers such as Melville, Dostoevsky, Conrad, Faulkner, Wolf to a certain extent, O'Connor definitely, McCarthy for sure, as the torchbearers of this tradition that personally I call it cosmic realism. I think that cosmic realism is defined by the scale of the writing, by its the reach of its vision, that it's always articulating something that's almost mythic or something that has a metaphysical scale matched up with human affairs and asking the question always, what is it that we are? What's the stuffing that we're made of? And it's a very distinct form of writing. I don't think it's much understood anymore for some reason. I think that it can be met with confusion, usually, most most of these writers, when they were alive, were met with confusion. And that seems to me is what I'm writing into. That's what I think I belong to. And I don't think there are a lot of writers who are doing that. I do think there are some writers who are exploring similar things or different ways. You know, Fernanda Melkor in Hurricane Season, she's doing something really special with in that book. She's taking the Southern Gothic and reinterpreting it and expanding it for the modern abyss that is Mexico. And that's a very special book. There are other writers who are doing interesting things. But yeah, it's very hard to just sort of say, oh, I belong to this, I belong to that. You know, to me, I think writers are also in conversation with the past as much as they are with sort of contemporary writers. Sure. And do you think that your writing is met with confusion in the same way? I think I'm much closer to being understood now. I think that when I was first published, there was some confusion. I think American critics and French critics absolutely got me straight off. They had no problem understanding what I was doing. And in Ireland, there was definitely confusion, for sure. Talking about the difference in the reaction of the critics, I'm curious as to whether or not you're detecting any difference in reaction among readers. You know, Sam and I, being from different sides of the Atlantic, we talk a lot on the show about how books and ideas are received in the U.S. versus the U.K. And while your book is still relatively new in the United States, I think everyone, at least from my viewpoint as the owner of an independent bookstore, everyone knows your book at this point, and we've been selling tons of it. But do you see a difference in the reaction to this particular work between the U.K. and the United States? 
Honestly, I'm not in a position to judge. I haven't been stateside yet. I'll be over there in week after next. You know, I am actually getting a lot of letters, emails from American readers, though, that are really, some of them are very beautiful. Some readers who are really deeply moved by the book. I'm very grateful for that. And I'm not really meeting people who are telling me they hated my book. Though I did get one very amusing email. It just said, I hated your book. It's nothing but pain and, uh, you know, all the best. <laughs> something, something like that. Um, a good blast of, of honesty. And, and that's fine. You know, you can't win everyone over. <laughs> so that we don't end focusing on the negative, I wonder, this might be an impossible question, but if you can give us some inkling of, you know, the moment you won the booker and, you know, how it feels to have the camera suddenly on you and what was going through your head, I guess. So I realized from talking to friends and family that it became something of a meme after winning it that my reaction a shot is that what they're called i think they're called, you know the moment i won was going around and because it was a very genuine moment i suppose what people don't know and i won't go into it too much but is i had a moment 20 minutes beforehand where i actually left the venue and had to be brought back in again and because I went through a lot of shit in my life in the last 18 months, I mean, two major, major things happened to me. I lost my marriage and I had cancer. And so I was sitting in that room and I just thought, if I win this, I won't be able to deal with it. I won't be able to handle it. I won't be able to contain it because of what's happened to me because I've come through so much. And that's when I left the room and, you know, I came back in and I was okay, but you know, you don't ever expect to win the book prize. That's all I can say. It's not something you think is going to happen to you. Not for a writer like me. I talked about, you know, the writers who play to the edges of the court. I play always along the, I'm looking for the lines along the edges of the court. I don't play it down the center and the book prize moved from the center to the edges of the court. And so I didn't see that coming. And so, yeah, I was overwhelmed. I was very overwhelmed. Well, it was a lovely moment. And, you know, thank you for the meme as well as everything else. (laughs) Well, Paul, I wanted to thank you for joining us today to talk about this amazing novel, Prophet Song. And I want to urge all of our listeners out there to visit their independent bookstore and purchase a copy. It's an amazing, amazing book. And we're so thankful that we could have you on today. No, it's a great pleasure, Laurie and Sam. Thank you for having me. Thank you. 